We've been ambushed by pornography. Hi, this is Karen Broadhead, director of Mothers Who Know. Are you or your loved ones experiencing the fallout? All of our families are navigating this uncertain territory. This enlightening series is dedicated to breaking the chains of pornography. Get ready to harness game-changing truths and tools for you and those you love. Special guest presenters with time in the trenches will courageously share experiences on the front lines along with powerful messages of hope. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I am so excited that you are here. I'm just thrilled to be interviewing today TJ Rowden, who is a clinician here at Life Changing Services. But he also is so many other wonderful things, and I'm so excited for you to get to know him and to experience this topic of breaking the chains of pornography and arming parents and leaders and families and youth with some understanding and information and even maybe some tools that you'll take away from this that will be instrumental in your ability to confront things that right now might feel really un uncomfortable and maybe even scary to you. And yeah, I'm just thrilled. TJ, hello. Hi, Karen. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. And oh, let's just get to know you a little bit. And I started asking TJ before we started the recording, how about this? And what about that? And I was like, shh, I just really want to Get to know you in this podcast so that'll be great would you mind telling us a little bit about oh your family your hobbies and then also how you got involved in the work that you do well to back it up a little bit originally an arizona kid i grew up in northwestern arizona uh, oldest of four siblings and most of my family in fact all of my family is still down there um two younger brothers and a younger sister <clears throat> Spent all of my life there, served a mission in Washington, D.C., north from 93 to 95, uh, came home. I was worked for about a year and four months as a groundman on a power line crew before I got thrown from a horse that we were training and uh, with, at my granddad's place. And during that time of injury and recovery, I decided I was going to follow up on something I had thought about while I was on my mission, which was um, further education, going to school, but specifically at Rick's College when it was Rick's College back in the day. Yeah. 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 I bet I was there before you, but totally <laughs> no, Rick's College. 98 for me, Karen. That's when I was there. Did you, what did you say? 96 to 98 was when I was there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was there before you. I was there from 84 okay. to, yeah, 84 to 87 is actually how long I was there. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, it was a decision while I was recovering, sitting in, in an office in Arizona with my hand in a cast after I'd gotten thrown from that horse and was rethinking a little bit about what direction I was going to go. I reflect, reflected back on a conversation I'd had with a, a missionary I served with about his experience with one class. There was one class up at Rick's that was offered at the time I was there, before I went there, that he told me about. And so I specifically went to Rick's College to take that one class in addition to whatever else happened. What was it? What was that class? The class was actually called Principles of Personal Achievement by the book that we went along with the class was by a guy named uh, David, David Christensen, I think was his name. 
that was the author of the book. Um, but of course, that quickly became one of many reasons why I was up there. And you learn that when you go, you, you go and do. And then as you go and do, uh, quite often, the path ahead of you becomes much more enlightened as you take the steps that are needful. So yeah. met my wife, my my spouse, my partner at that time. We married in 97, and then we moved down to Provo as I finished up some undergraduate work in marriage, family, and human development at BYU and Provo, mm -hmm. and was accepted and completed my master's degree in marriage and family therapy down at BYU, and then went down to Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas to finish up the rest of grad school and my doctoral degree down there. Wound up getting to a point in 2000, yes, let's see, 2003, where I was finished with my coursework, but had not finished my dissertation. And yet our young family, in conversation with Becky and our family's needs at the times, so we needed to be closer to family. So we moved. It's called ABD, All But Dissertation. So everything was done except for my dissertation, which was no small thing. Um, not a lot of professors are excited about students leaving uh, to work, to take on a full-time job while they've still got that to do because a lot of students don't finish. Yeah. Um, had experiences with a few of the professors down there uh, navigating that conversation, felt prompted to, to do it anyway. We did. It took me a little bit, about five years to finish it, but I finished my doctoral degree at a distance from tech and uh, worked wow. in, a, in a, it was called a therapeutic boarding school setting up in Montana for five years before moving down to here in, in Layton is where we, we work in 2010. I, and we've been here ever since. We live in Syracuse, Utah. Married to Becky since that time, like I said, in August of 97. And we have four children. Haley's our oldest at 23. And then we have James and Sterling who are 19 and 17. And then you've got our youngest, Ellie, who's 11 years old. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you had an 11 year old. Yeah. Yeah. She's our caboose and she's awesome. Awesome. She's still the one that when you run in the door, jumps up with all kinds of energy and is really thrilled that you're home. And the others, I think, are thrilled, but they're less expressive about it, right? They've got other, <laughs> they don't pile off the couch and run straight at you and give you a big tackle hug and say, hey, daddy. You know, and I remind them of that quite often. Hey, you guys used to do this, right? You remember what you're saying right here? This used to be, right? But That's so good. That's when it's time to get a dog. When Ellie stops doing that, it's time for you yeah. to get a dog. We have a dog. We have two cats and eight chickens. So we're no shortage of animals as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've been working at a residential treatment center for 14 years full-time in that period of time as well. I was able to meet Maurice and Cody and other clinicians regarding some emerging needs with some of the kids I was seeing in an outpatient setting. Started running Sons of Helaman Group in Syracuse and I have been doing that for, I want to say about 12 years. I think it's been long. And then also do a, a private practice. Uh, a couple of years ago, we started a small clinic where my therapy is separate from the clinic. And I've got three therapists who work for me right now as well. And then active in our local faith community in our ward, which has gone through many changes in the last 14 years. Wow. And so your ward, have you lived in the same home in Syracuse for all these years? The first two years we were in a rental in Syracuse, one part of it. And then we built a home out West, about as far West as you can go before you fall in the lake. Out to <laughs> That's where we and we've been there ever since. So 12 of the 14 years, roughly, we've been in the same home. It's the longest we lived, we've lived. we lived anywhere. We did the gypsy lifestyle with school for quite a while. So good. So when you say you're involved in your faith community, like 
your ward where you are probably has changed a lot. It has. It has. Yeah. yeah. You talk to some of the, the, the folks who are real old timers that they've seen all kinds of changes. This Where we live used to be an area that was all agricultural farmland. People mm -hmm. used to have pheasants and ducks and everything out there and mm -hmm. homes continue to come in as people find the area and are growing to love it. Wow. Makes me want to drive out there. I don't think I've ever gone that far west in Syracuse. Right? Yeah. Decided to take a trip out to Antelope Island. You drive almost within a stone's throw of where we live. Wow. Okay. That's fun. I won't throw any stones at you, but that will be a fun drive. <laughs> we stone catcher, right? We learned about that. Be a stone catcher. Yes. So good. Oh, you know what? One, I want to come back just a little more about what you noticed about Sons of Helaman and coming in through there. But one of the reasons I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you is because you're a father mm -hmm. and so you've watched your own children grow up and navigate this mortal zone that we're all going through right as a parent so you're a parent of a father you're also a clinician and a professional and so you have so much knowledge in psychology and then also your experience, but then you recently were also called to be the bishop of whatever your ward boundary is now, right? Yes, yes. And so I just thought, wow, what a great, all these different angles to come at this topic of breaking the chains of pornography and what you've learned, what you've noticed and what the spirit would lead you to share with us about that. So how long have you been a bishop? Coming on two years, about a year and a half right now. Okay. Where does the time go? I need to start throwing stones your way. <laughs> it's fast. It's it's so fast. I can remember it was like maybe six months ago that I heard right. you were just called to be a bishop. So I'm like, that was two years ago. Wow. Right. Yeah, it, it's moving quickly. It just it seems like every facet of life, the older you get, the older your family gets, the quicker it moves. So, Amen. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then you have some experience navigating this in your ward setting. Mm -hmm. as well with the young men and young women and the men, just anybody in your ward family. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we're trying to for sure highlight in this series is Sons of Helaman. And that's, it sounds like that's where you started. So let's start, just tell us a little bit more of, that's where you started with life-changing services is what I mean to say. Right. And noticing you were already working with people, but what was it that how did you run into Maurice and Cody? And what did you notice about the Sons of Human program that you thought, that's cool? Thanks for asking that. I, again, I had started doing some work in our, our local community with um, individuals, couples, families, and youth. Again, that's where I've spent all of my professional career is working in a residential treatment uh, with teens from about 14 to 18, sometimes 19 years old within those settings. In the outpatient setting, uh, I've continued to work with a broad range of clients, and in particular with the youth, when those were coming in the door, I uh, young men that were coming in the door with this struggle, and and again, it was broader than just the young men, but that's where the Sons of Helaman experience got started. I had heard, having moved in here, that there was this group. I'd heard about other organizations that do similar work around pornography, masturbation, sexual addiction issues. And I heard it about Sons of Helaman, and it had come up in a couple of different conversations with people that this was out there. And 
I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, hear about it once. Okay. You hear about it a few times. What is this? And so I reached out tentatively and wound up getting on the phone with Maurice just to say, Hey, I want to find out more. Mm-hmm. And I'll be really candid with you at first coming in the door. I thought, okay, sons of Helaman. And it's a program that goes after work with this issue. Is this just a gimmicky thing to take advantage of uh, a very concentrated group of Latter-day Saints and appeal to the, the church lingo, church stories, and mm-hmm. an effort to do this? Is this something that's actually more what we, we might refer to as pseudo-psychology type stuff? Um, and I know that's a question that sometimes comes up for people. Is yeah. this is this really... So we had, Maurice and I got on the phone, we had probably a 20, 30 minute conversation where I was asking questions and I was being very tentative. I think he could tell that I was being somewhat uh, cautious mm-hmm. and maybe a little cynical, even though I was trying not to be, but I was. And he said, hey, listen, just come to one of the groups, come to one of the groups based on your learning, based on your training and, and what you have learned in terms of effective therapy. Mm-hmm ethical therapy why don't you come check us out and just see what you think see how this matches and we'll use that as an opportunity to get to know you as well so I did and so I went and attended one of his groups and I would say that it was actually not about Maurice and he's very clear on that himself but it wasn't about Maurice it was the group process that uh, I noticed when I went where the boys were incredibly engaged the dynamics around a group of young men who owned the group experience who engaged well with each other it wasn't like and, and I can come back and address this as we talk further, but it wasn't like a, perhaps a stale robotic autopilot Sunday school class or priest quorum lesson. Not that we want them to be that way and they don't have to be that way, but sometimes that's what happens is we get on, we get on rewind and repeat or rinse and repeat. And we, that's something we do want to address later today. But these boys were active. They were engaged. They were not relying on the group facilitator to do the work, although he helped guide and and direct it. Mm. Powerfully strong with the young men that I attended. And I said, okay, based on what I see and what I know of good group process, I want in on that. And Mm. so I got started 12 years ago. We made arrangements to start a group in Syracuse. I started with two young men. One was a return missionary and the other wasn't. And the rest is history. But the group is built. I think the Syracuse group has been known, come to be known as a group who does really well with pull chem, which we can talk about later. But when it comes to warrior chemistry, the part of, of warrior chemistry that has to do with a deep and abiding love for those mm-hmm. things that are precious to us and, and how we are drawn to them, whether that's individual, couples, families, relationships, or even nature, God himself. And so we really cherish that concept in our group as we run it. And it's been a, it's been a good experience trying to honor that same first experience I had all those years ago. I love that. And of course, I've never attended your group, but I've talked to lots of parents who have sons in your group. I've also just heard through the grapevine here at Life Changing Services, you do, you have a dynamic group, lots of young men that have attended your group and often like to just stay because you're a connector of, of young men. You connect them well, but... I, one of the, one of the times that I thought I got to get to know BJ, but I got to get to know TJ so much better. I have a BJ on my mother's team that I adore. And so that's why that came out, but I got to get to know TJ better because he's going on runs or bike rides or something with his guys. And I was like, okay, that's a first for me hearing that. And so I just thought, that's so cool that he's invested enough to say, 
Yeah, and we're connecting outside of this as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Along the way, various times as a group, sometimes we've got together, we, we, we want to do war chem experiences. And so depending on the nature of the group scheduling, weather and so forth, there have been times when we've taken group outside of the building to follow up on pizza points in somewhat of a unique way with our group. We've actually gotten together on Saturday mornings for Ultimate Frisbee. And then there's times when I have, I've got on most recently, there's a young man in my group who's a fan of something called Zwift. It's an online virtual cycling experience that you can ride with other people. And he and I have connected on that. And I've ridden with him. Um, wow. Supportive of his efforts. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's it's awesome. About getting in your body, right? So we, we want to do more than just sit and talk. We want to do things to support young men really reclaiming their bodies as powerful tools and resources and the temples that they are. So we try to support that. Yeah, so good. Oh, will you explain that just a little bit more? Because if explain it as if you were explaining it to someone who had no idea what you were talking about. So it's such an incredible principle. And I love that you call it pole cam. I yeah. was like, what? And then when you do, I was like, that's cool. For years, when I first started, we just talked about warrior chemistry as warrior chemistry. And in the early days of, of this group, and I think in our efforts across clinicians and groups, there was a real strong emphasis on what we read about in the Book of Mormon, about the desire to fight and have real strong reasons for fighting in a way that is fiercely protective and at a moment's notice to be able to tap into that part of ourselves that can stand up in the face of adversity, of threat, of harm physically and spiritually. And for a good number of years, we talked about that as being what war chemistry was. And I think that's a beautiful concept, especially when we, especially in the intake interviews, when we would go through and help youth and families really understand what it means to try to tap into that at a moment's notice that, that we can rise up. Mm. We're exhausted, tired, we struggle, rise up within ourselves and in the face of such threat and, and potential harm especially in those interviews when you start to recognize how do I tap into that, that, that desire when it relates to me being under threat, my soul, my spirit, my being. And a lot of times we, we feel more strongly about that with others. So it was a few years in that there was a refinement in that. And it was to recognize a lot of times that which we are rising up against to, to protect, let's protect what? Protect ourselves, but to protect that which is precious to us and to our father in heaven. And when we're not in those moments of fighting that fight, mm -hmm. we're also faced with and we have the opportunity to do is cultivate and strengthen the relationships and the connections that we have with ourselves and with others, all of which and all of whom are precious in the eyes of God. So that's why we fight fiercely against to protect that which is precious with us or within us. It's what we, it, the experiences, relationships that we have, or we're pulling relationships and, and things to us or allowing ourselves to be pulled toward them that matter most in our lives. And there's a fierce effort on the part of the adversary to distance us, to distract us, and to disconnect us from those things which are precious. And that's. Yeah, that's so cool. It's almost once you can tap into this really sacred, important, beloved part inside yourself that's so important, right? That's This is where all my fighting stems from. And often I can't tap into it unless I understand the power of connection, the power of allowing myself to connect and inviting people to connect from a place of love, but 
man, it's like a heightened sensitivity to your identity, who you are as a son of God or daughter of God. Right. Wow. And it's to, there's a phrase that we've talked about in our group recently uh, from the Book of Mormon. Early in the Book of Mormon, we learn about the importance of not just remembering, but retaining in remembrance those mm-hmm. things we've learned, our testimony. There's there's something really beautiful about that phrase. And I think it's really relevant to, to today's struggles and challenges. When it comes to our identity, there is an ongoing relentless on that relationship with ourselves, with our Father in Heaven, to disconnect us mm-hmm. from that awareness, that knowledge, that certainty of our relationship with God, and then therefore who we are and whose we are, as the saying goes. Because of that, we don't. The, the, the challenge, the invitation, is not just to remember; it's that once we do remember, to fight to retain that remembering on the daily. Mm-hmm. I think we live in a time now where that challenge is probably more significant than ever before because we live in an age of excess access, mm. not anything that would interfere with that remembering. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's such a sweet arrow that you're pointing at the natural man being an enemy to God. And the way and the angle you're coming at this, will you just share with us your understanding of just that interpretation of that scripture as it relates to this, because that it's almost, we are not our own worst enemy. Right. But Satan's efforts right there have so much to do with, there is this part of you, if I can sneak in there, (laughs) just put you to sleep with your eyes open. The Book of Mormon talks about the natural man is an enemy to God, has been from the fall of Adam and so forth, right? And Mm -hmm. so I think if we're not careful, one of the satanic attacks, even around that beautiful doctrine, is to then look at that part of ourselves and vilify it. Mm. And therefore, we wind up going to war against ourselves. I, yes, thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad. I love to hear you talk. Keep going. This is the way that it's really become deeply, because I, I listen, with all of the the professional experience and training and all of that, there's also the fact that I put my pants on the same way everybody else does one leg at a time. In other words, I get out of bed and I am walking the same journey in my own way. So natural man for me. And I remember there's some experiences that I've had in my life where that distinction, that awareness became really important that there's not a part of me that I have to kill, but there is a part of me that the Book of Mormon teaches that it needs to learn to, to submit. Mm. And, and that's the way the scripture teaches us from the Book of Mormon, unless he yields to the of the spirit. And so really, that's the process that we're working on. We're not trying to vilify this part of ourselves that we have to survive. We're, we're learning to train it, to teach it, to cultivate natural man responsiveness to the spiritual part of ourselves or the, the moral part of ourselves, the the part of ourselves that we want and feel like is, is perhaps our best self. Mm-hmm. I love having had some background with horses that I mentioned earlier, the Book of Mormon later on, uh, think about Alma the Younger, who is now Alma Papa, the dad, talking to his three mm-hmm. sons, his letters in the middle of the Book of Mormon. And he talks to his son Shiblon about bridling your passions. If you understand what bridling is, it's not to demand or control it's to teach and to train and for anybody that's had any background with horses and what the purpose of a bridle is 
And for someone who is a master trainer, there's very little effort that ultimately comes to be required when working with a horse through a bridle to communicate, to direct, to support, and, and to partner with a horse through appropriate bridling and, and, and reining and so forth and skills there. It's a beautiful metaphor when you understand it from that perspective. And so when we look at what it means to bridle our passions, it's to teach, to train, to cultivate, to inform, to develop, to strengthen, and to magnify and elevate through the help of the Lord, not to judge, to destroy, to try to disconnect. We're learning to partner with that part of ourselves rather than to destroy it. So in Sons of Helaman, I know it's hard to partner with ourselves and in productive ways without the help of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So how do you bring that element in Sons of Helaman? Christ is the anchor. We, we, we talk about, in, at least in our group in Sons of Helaman, we talk frequently about the difference between means and ends, that the end of all the work that we do is a strengthened relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. The end of a strengthened relationship with Jesus Christ is salvation and eternal life with our Father in heaven to be forever families. And sometimes it becomes really easy to confuse those means with ends. We start to think about things. I'll give you an example. Sometimes we start to think about manpower as a system of six daily goals, behaviors, or actions that we engage in mm-hmm. that we maybe we'll talk about later specifically for those who haven't had exposure to that. But that becomes a tool that we use. That's just a tool. It's n- That's a means towards that relationship with Christ. It's not the end itself. And I think sometimes you can start talking about and focusing on manpower in the way as if manpower saves, as if manpower strengthens. No, manpower mm-hmm. is meant to point you to him who saves. And I think in, in church settings, we intuitively understand that. We come to accept that almost without questioning it. But what does it really mean in the trenches? Like, how does Christ legitimately help me right. to break the chains of, of addiction, of pornography, of other vices that we may struggle with? Like, how does he literally crawl into the trenches of my daily experience mm. and affect change? Yeah, just that question right there. It mm. makes me emotional because I think that is the yearning. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the loneliness. That's the where we feel like I, this is getting so trenchy. It's so hard and I can't find, and oh, I just, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for here at Life Changing Services and having a son who was introduced to the Sons of Healing program and learning this is, it literally was life-changing for me to be this church lady to the very depths of my soul and be so miserable and think, how can I be this miserable and this upset and this scared, right? When I'm checking all the boxes, I I just was, that was so confusing to me, but it wasn't until my son went through Sons of Helaman and I watched him do something in his youth that I had not figured out yet at the age of 44. And it was that very thing. It was, I'm just yearning. I do not understand the correlation, the how do I find Jesus Christ? How do I understand his help in my life when it's so hard and trenchy? I met you years ago. And when you talked about your journey back then, 
there's even a story that you told in one of the Breaking the Chain seminars years ago that we still tell in our group today, all these years later. Oh, really? <laughs> right there. Do you remember it, Karen? Yeah, totally. Just move <laughs> the finger. Yeah. If you're, if you are more powerful than him all the time, if you can just think, what can I do right now that is more than giving up? That's one of those bits of kind of awareness in the trenches that can help. It's one of those things to realize that when we do remember, when we retain in remembrance our ability to have infinitely and immediately more power in the moment than the adversary can ever have precisely because we have this and he doesn't. Yeah, this weapon, this body. Gift, endowment. When we talk about there's so many different ways in which we can experience our bodies in a powerful way, empowered way that we lose sight of because of how he tries to get us disconnected from that. So mm -hmm. Karen, where do you want me to go from here? Because there's about five different thoughts I had when you were sharing your experience. Um, and I can go all over the place, but... <laughs> Right. Can I share just two things? Is that okay? Yeah. I was actually, I'm not right now. I'm like, ah, I didn't mention that thing that I usually mention to people before I started the podcast, which is if you ever have a moment that you're feeling like she probably is waiting to ask me a question and wants me to be quiet because she has an agenda. And the only agenda I follow in these podcast interviews is just follow the spirit. So if you feel like I'm being spirit led, I'm just going to follow you and then ask things in it here's a couple thoughts then just where we are at this year you were talking okay. about this experience about just life in the trenches and how does christ actually meet us there mm -hmm. the theme in my family personally within the work with young men in, in my priest quorum and also within this group of young men and the youth that i even work with in the setting the, my full-time setting language is a little different because of where we are but the principles are there yeah so a couple thoughts I remember years ago at the marriage or the wedding of a nephew on my wife's side of the family, his mom, my sister-in-law was telling us about attending a Sunday meeting at which my nephew's wife's mother taught a class. And she talked about this experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of taking a stand for what was firm and, and true for them in their faith and getting cast into the furnace for it. And it wasn't until in the furnace that the savior came mm. more recently the story in matthew 14 about the, the the apostles being on the the boat in the stormy sea of galilee with the winds and the waves that were boisterous and fierce christ comes upon walking across the water and peter has his experience of stepping out of the boat but again the principle it wasn't un, until at the midst of the storm that the savior came mm. Now, I don't know. I know that's not all he does. I'm not trying to overstate this, Mark, but I do think that there's enough experience with people perhaps listening to this where it's not just in the trenches, it's in the furnaces and on the stormy seas of life that we feel like, where is he? Mm -hmm. Personal note, we've talked about this a lot in, in the last six months. My youngest son was asked to speak in state conference. He immediately talked about I don't know why they asked me. There's so many other people, some of that insecurity. And so we talked about really what he wanted the experience to be for himself and with others, what he felt like the Lord wanted. And what he got, what he landed on immediately was, I don't want it just to be another going through the motions and talking at people. Mm. I just want to share my experience. And I said, well, keep it real. You wow. don't have to get up and pretend or put on a show or put on an image of what you think people need to see or want to see. 
you just stand up there and be authentic in your relationship with your father in heaven and people will see and hear what they need to with the help of the spirit. Mm. He tells that story in Matthew about Peter and he's had his own challenges. And, and I'll never forget this. He stands up at one point and says, I can relate with Peter in part, but here's where it's different for me. He said, I feel like I'm in the boat at times when the wind and the waves are fierce and I'm willing to step out on the water, but I don't see my savior. I don't see him out there like Peter did. Mm. And he says, I think in my life, what the step of faith or leap of faith is, am I still willing to step out on the water when I don't see Christ mm. trusting that he's there and trusting that he has me. And he says, I am, I'm learning how to do that. I'm learning what that looks like for me every day. I think for listeners, how many of us can relate with that experience where maybe we've asked to step into the furnace or cast into the furnace with no promise, no vision of a savior meeting us there. Mm -hmm. we, we step out of the, uh, the, the boat onto the waves without really seeing him there, but do we trust and have faith that he will be? That's uh, that's, that's a mic dropper right there. I love that. It was just really, it's really powerful because I think what I would say to families when, when we talk about breaking the change, how about before we get to breaking the change, it's just first recognizing just how sometimes challenging the chains are and recognizing that when we are struggling with things, that that whatever the, the vice, the addiction, the struggle might be, can we just pause? Mm to what do we do about it to so just recognize two things that the chains are real it's part of the plan and i don't mean that to sound cliche but it's precisely one of the reasons why we're here is to hit those moments and, and to learn how to navigate those with the help of a savior and the second thing is if we can acknowledge that our worth and our value in the throes of those really challenging and difficult moments is never in question never uh, I think it was, I think it was Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or one of those old Greek guys that said, a stone cast in the air is no better for going up and no worse for coming down. And that's true about our value, whether we're up or down in life, having successes or whether we're having struggles and difficulties, our value is constant. Mm. And we need to pause and remember that because that then becomes our launching place from which we then go about breaking chains and taking steps and engaging in action that can make a difference. Sometimes it's hard to remember that, but that's something we need to retain in our remembrance. Yeah, it's, that is so wonderful. Just so powerful to recognize that my, my, my safety, uh, the safety of my soul, right? It makes me think of that hymn, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Mm -hmm. It makes me think, man, I, as it comes to my own battles that I fight personally, it's so important for me to recognize that Satan has a very strategic way. And I know that's one of the eye openers in being in Sons of Helaman is it actually shows you that there is no enemy there with you, not one. But you do have an enemy and he's pretty serious. Yeah, absolutely. Deadly serious. Yes. And so if you if you're 
saying, boy, I would love to seal up my heart against anything I do that really causes me some pain and misery. But yeah, if you don't understand it, I don't understand why I do those dumb things. I just must be me. And that's, it's a huge aspect of the training. The identity piece, the not allowing the adversary to get you to a crossroad. And then all of us do it. We crash and burn here and there. And we think, oh, what have I done? How did that happen? And I keep doing that, even though when I'm in my right mind, I really want to try hard. I really want to do my best. I really want to be good. And so if parents, if spouses, if us personally can't understand that, oh, you are not the enemy, you are beloved, and you are just as God looks at us, as the Savior looks at us, it's like you are whole. I see you way away from this situation. This is just you right now having this, and I've got the solution. I'm right here, right? I'm the guy. But it's so hard to believe it or to even reach for it when you think I'm the enemy. And it's what you're talking about. Let's put a finer point on that. And that was actually when I was first being trained on how to do intakes and really the perspective that we want to remember mm -hmm. in part through the groups. One of my favorite parts of the intake interview when we're meeting with families is when we start talking about that story from like dragons, did they fight when it's about the example of a young man being called into that wartime situation with a group of soldiers where they're advancing on an enemy objective. And there's a voice in the radio that comes across mm. promising help, promising a way out, promising salvation, if you will, a way to avoid death. Yeah. And we follow that voice on the radio ultimately to realize that it was counterfeit, that the enemy was the one who stole a radio, learned how to, to speak in a way that we would be most vulnerable to. And in particular, to speak in a way that sounds so familiar, so promising. and Relief. Yeah, relief, promising the relief, right? That it, we, we don't even question it. And so I remember, again, in the training, and this is how I'll, I'll language it with families at intake. In our field, we have all the different names for it. Negative self-talk, our negative inner dialogue, our inner critic, and a variety of other descriptors for it. And I'm not saying that those aren't a fair attempt on the part of what we've learned through mental health to describe perhaps that natural man vulnerability with all of the biochemistry and the neurochemistry associated with it. Mm -hmm. I get it. every everyone since Freud has been talking about different names for that part of ourselves. Yeah. What all of them fail to acknowledge from, from a perspective of faith and doctrine that we believe in is that there is always an enemy of our souls out there trying to stroke and partner up with that part of ourselves. And, and, and trying to pass messages and influence that part of ourselves in such a subtle, sneaky, like a covert ops assassin kind of a way that we never suspect his presence. We just continue to see that he emerges from, originates from ourselves. Therefore, we're vulnerable to owning it and getting caught in these, just these again, shame spirals and destructive ways of seeing ourselves that becomes Satan's playground. It just becomes literally where he has a heyday. When you think about the, the scriptures that we hear, Satan threw his head back and laughed and his angels rejoiced. I, I think those are probably some of those moments when he's got him. 
Once got him, <laughs> watch him, watch him take pick up and own our stuff as his own. And we'll talk in those intake interviews. He's a master counterfeiter. So is it that hard to believe that there's a ministering program on the part of the adversary? That it's not just two by two, that perhaps there are teams of devils. C.S. Lewis talked about this in screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. There are if, if a third of the host of heaven is at his disposal, how many of them are assigned to us specifically, personally, and strategically? Mm-hmm. Really relentlessly go after that kind of experience. They don't struggle with their percentages, Karen. It's <laughs> 100% ministry every day <laughs> on the part of the adversary and, and those that, fa- that fell with him, right? That's yeah. And, oh, it just, if we can see that, that it's, it's always fun in an intake interview to say, what if that's not you? What if those moments are not you? What if that's an adversary? And I had a guy in group years ago who actually said, huh. And <laughs> if I could just play with this for a minute here. Sure. So we've got natural man part of ourselves. We've got Lucifer, the two to do a dance. Lucifer is always leading that dance. And this is like the slightly derpy. I, I don't know if I want to say that, but it's the less learned, less experienced part of us because we've only got so much time here on earth uh, where natural man is stumbling through it. Yeah. This, and this, he's this, like the greatest, he's the greatest leader in the dance because we've been practicing for a long time. Oh yeah. He's, he's known it. He's not passed through the veil. He hasn't forgotten any of his moves, right? That got him cast out and he's really dialed. Anyway, this young man actually said, you know what, that the natural man, he says, I, I've come to, I've actually come to name my, the name of my natural man is Phil. And <laughs> Feels like a New Jersey, like a New Jersey thug. He totally personified this. And this is how it sounds. He's like, when I hear it in this way, it helps me tease it out. And he says, this is so this is what it feels sounds like. He's sometimes, hey, how you doing? Hey, it's Friday afternoons. And you know that thing we do sometimes when mom and dad ain't home? Hey, you know, like it's time. They left the computer on the table. It's right there. Hey, don't talk back to me. I don't want to hear any of this churchy stuff. You know? Hey, whoa. Lucifer. Hey, Lou, he's giving me a hard time. What do you got? And he's, that's literally how it feels that if I start to push back on natural man, that within this struggle, wow. he's feel that part of himself, almost like looking for satanic backup to overcome skills and growth and development and awareness that he's learning. And he said it was really powerful to see it in that way, to, to distance that experience from who he really is. His wow. His identity. And uh, that was one kind of fun way of looking at this to take on a very critical issue. Yeah. Somewhat, not a light-minded way, but a light-hearted way that was very effective for that young man. Worthwhile. Fun. Yeah, that's so worthwhile. It, it points to, just like we do anything in life, I'm going to make a peanut butter sandwich and eat it differently than you are. Yeah. Right? But we both really like peanut butter sandwiches. Right. But the way that I really enjoy it or understand it or have that experience, it's very personal. The way I battle, the way I, the way this makes sense to me, the way that I hold that sacred identity that Satan is relentless at trying to deceive and make me feel like, yeah, that's not real and that Christ isn't there and he's not real. And you must not be real because you are a faker. Yeah. 
So that man, that young man learned, he says, over the course of time, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's not about vilifying that part of himself. What he really learned was that Phil was looking for leadership. Wow. And in the absence of stronger, firm leadership that had a strong vision and an ability to say, we, we talk about these concepts in our field, right? Delayed gratification mm. versus immediate gratification. And he says, what I learned over time is that if I wasn't leading, then Phil was looking for someone to lead and he would totally allow Lucifer to lead. So it was about taking the leadership back with the help of the Lord. And so that natural man learned to submit to and pay attention to the leader that it came to trust more than the adversary. Ah, oh, so cool. Thank you, TJ. Yeah. yeah. Can you, how has this informed the way you parent? Because I've often thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a class that I could figure out how to teach and be really good at it that was just called something like how to train a warrior or how to train your warrior or how to just like, how has this informed your parenting? How has and yeah, how has it informed your parenting first and then your services in the church? And as a bishop, I know you've probably worked with young men for years, but. Knowing, boy, there's a lot to that question. How has it informed my parenting and church service? You'll hear more about this in a much more specific way when we get to the end and I share my reasons, but I'll give you a teaser now. Okay. Because I think it's relevant to perhaps what a lot of us struggle with, with as parents. We put so much of an emphasis on like how that satanic attack happens for our youth and those that are struggling. And you, you touched on it earlier as well, Karen, in your own experience as a mother. Mm -hmm. Satanic attacks happen as much or more for parents of kids who are struggling. Amen. Into shame-based and failure-based thinking. That whisper, that voice on the radio in the, in the ear of a mother or a father mm -hmm. oftentimes is just relentless and you're not doing enough. If you actually really saw and knew your son or daughter, you'd be able to know how to better intervene quicker to say the right things, to do the right things. You're not doing enough. You're not enough. You never will be enough. Your son or daughter is doomed. You're a, a total throwaway or a castaway as a parent. Mm. Like what in the literal hell is wrong with you? Mm. Yeah. That's so kind of thinking. And so when we attach a bit of our ego and we attach a bit of our worth to the behavior of our children and the success that they're having or the struggles that they're having, that's probably one of the first things that I would say to the parents is that we have to recognize that our, our son or daughters, again, going back to the rock, right? Their worth and value never changes, whether they're up or down. Mm -hmm. Similarly, our worth and value never changes as a parent, whether our child is up or down whether they're going through the successes, right? Or their struggles. Yeah. Now, more pointedly, if you actually connect that to what King Benjamin really tried to, I think, help us understand, behold, are we not all beggars? Mm. Do we not all rely upon that same being? It's, it's what he taught us. And yet how much of our time's, our, our efforts, our energy each day, do we wind up trying to be anything but a beggar or perceived as a beggar? We, we don't want to be seen that way. Right. We don't want to be seen as the parent of a, of a failed or a failing or a struggling child. And so there's a lot of what we call in our field impression management. We engage in 
rather than just being us, we, we engage in trying to be perceived a certain way yes. by others. And if nothing else, we sometimes try to engage in being, we, we, we engage in trying to see ourselves a certain way, which again, Lucifer's got his fingerprints on and he's trying to get us to own all that stinking thinking and all that negativity. Yeah. How has it affected my parenting? Is to recognize that I am nothing without the help of the Lord in connection with a heavenly father and mother who knows that child intimately. Mm. Stewardship, not ownership. I have a stewardship to work and partner with parents who see, know more than I ever will. And if I stay humble and turn to Christ, then I'm privileged and blessed with the opportunity to catch glimpses of the worth and the value and the strength of that child, regardless mm. of success or struggle, because the spirit bears witness to me of my own value and my worth and my presence. So we're broken, we're fallen. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how Christ wants us because we turn to him and then he helps make us more than we ever would be on our own as a mother, as a father. So sometimes that's what we bring to our kids. Can I give you an example? Yes. Recently with our oldest daughter, I had an interaction with her where, and I'll save a lot of the details of it out of respect for her, but we got into this moment where let's just say, based on what she initiated in the conversation, I felt pretty clear that, oh, that means then I can talk about this with her and address this with her mm -hmm. and share an opinion and then thought and unwanted or unsolicited advice with her <laughs> around mm -hmm. a particular topic. You know, that, that always goes well, right? <laughs> with our young adult children here let me tell you exactly what you need to know about that <laughs> in hindsight that's about how it landed at one point she it, it just flopped right she just i don't need this right now and she got up and she left the room mm. my wife looks at me and she's like boy that was brilliant way to go and she wasn't critical but she just she rolled her eyes because we as you might guess we've been around that block a few times sure you want to talk about despite knowing better and not doing better it's amazing <laughs> we stumble yeah, because you're you're such a good steward. You're so invested right there. Yeah, trying to really be, and sometimes we we miss the mark, right? We go, we shoot beyond the mark. Yes. I, I think one of the ways that this group, going back to what I was talking about in terms of the doctrine, those are precisely moments when you see that you've blown it. We can go one of two directions. We can either get really defensive and justifying, and we can really get caught up in If she would only dot, dot, and we just auger down into our rightness, and we become right in a very wrong way. Mm. Wow. it's a good way to put that. In that moment, she's like, you need to give her a little time. Becky said that to me, and I, I listened to my wife when she says those things. So it was really interesting to me that I didn't in this moment, because I, I felt maybe... There was a prompting that I had, and, and just in the moment, I I think I knew what Haley and I needed in that moment was a different move. And so I went to the I went to the closet, our gaming closet, and I got out a deck of Uno cards, and I grabbed a, I, I looked through what until I found a reverse card, mm. and I pulled it, and I walked downstairs where my daughter was, and I said, "Hey," she goes, "What?" <laughs> and I said, "I didn't say anything. I actually just took that card and I threw it in her lap." She's like, "What's this?" And then she started smiling and I said, I absolutely blew that moment with you upstairs. Mm. Can I even reverse this with you? Can we try again? Can we just reverse it and try again? And without belaboring the story, Karen, it, her responsiveness was just immediate. And she just said, she said, 
there's a part of what I was talking about with you where I felt like a lot of other people were against me and I didn't need you against me too. Mm. So I know you have your perspective on this, but in that moment, it's just not what I need. And I said, and I missed that. Can we have the conversation that we really need to have with the help of the Lord in this one? And she says, yeah, I think so. And so we did. And wow. just being able to own the missteps, own the mistakes um, in terms of impact without inappropriately taking it on as a failure, as a as a, mm-hmm. a, a lost cause ourselves, because we all muff it up. And so yeah. that's one of the ways that parenting can be affected. Can we own our stuff with our kids as much as we are hoping they will own their stuff in their own lives? That's one example. That's so powerful. It's such a powerful thing to, to recognize we're all bumping along. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter just because I've been here two decades more than you have. Do I mean, it's boy, we are bumping, we're bumping along. And there's something about that stewardship and that, for me, like that pride or that arrogance or that fear that comes up that I am the steward in the vineyard here and you're the tree that I'm trying to work with. (laughs) And so it's so cool to have this perspective that will just helps us to see that when we can submit mm-hmm. and not let that personal attack come in and look at the higher purpose here is the connection that we talked about earlier right Cole cams with right is we don't want to lose that connection we don't want to give satan the wedge right, right? we want to say we Um, At all costs, it is my goal to be on the same side of the line as you. That's what happened in that moment. When we align ourselves with the principles that allow these moments, Mm -hmm. it was a playful way to break the tension. And I still have that card. I've got it in my planner and and I carry it with me each day. I look at the universe card because when we do, when we are willing to focus on, okay, it's not a be about being at, it's about joining side by side. When, yes. we, when we look for ways to respond to just little promptings and impressions that we have, quite often a very natural occurrence is that we do wind up turning side by side rather than face to face. And the align, Cody, years ago, Cody Haas talked to me about this one time. If you ever feel yourself in a group starting to feel anger, upset, or irritation with one of the boys, pay attention. You need to go to war with something, but it's likely not that youth. Mm. It's likely how Lucifer is attempting to get you thinking about that youth. And in that example, I went to group and had that very conversation with him. I realized in the last few weeks, I've started to feel irritated with you. I've started to make this about you. That's on me to see, but it's really on the adversary because that's where that's coming from. Here's what I actually really see about you that I've lost sight of. And mm-hmm. went from this to, man, it was just, we see side by side experience. The same thing with my daughter. When we make a move to humble ourselves and turn to our savior and turn to the other person and connect rather than battle. I'm not saying it's always easy. And I'm not saying that the other party will always respond in these ways. It's not always right. a fairy tale moment or ending. Amen. Sure as heck, we sure as heck increase the chances and the likelihood of having those kinds of moments rather than consistently being at war with ourselves or our child. Yeah. Right. And whether they react the way we hope they do or not, right. 
if we can keep our side of it open, then mm -hmm. even though that fairy tale moment doesn't happen, we're open to recognize our role is to be someone who is supporting God's work with me and with you as we're bumping along, right? And so I'm still open to go connect there and take the, my pain or my disappointment or my hurt or my weakness, whatever, if I'm not in that place of now, we did give Satan the wedge and we're each other's enemy, which is never should be the, it, it happens all the time. <laughs> On, day, right? Yeah, daily I'm thinking, Karen, that, that thought right there, that was exactly 100% uh, true and felt completely justified and totally matches the situation. But if you pick that up, if you pick that up, then you just stepped away from the same side of the line. Now you're, you've just handed the enemy the wedge and you're letting him start to hammer on it. Yeah. yeah. Years ago, and, and there was a woman, I never met her, but I came across this statement. I think her name is Tina Peterson from a woman's conference down in Arizona in 2012. And she said something to the effect of this, brothers and sisters, we need to understand today that the war, the, I think it was actually the battleground between Babylon and Zion is happening at the level of the synapses of the brain. That's the prime real estate. Mm. What that means is that when we look at the neurochemistry, when we look at how Lucifer, I mean, we say this often in our groups, like Lucifer has become a pretty good psychologist or a neuroscientist. No, really he has, because he realizes that the perhaps the most prime real estate in our relationships ourselves or relationships with others is what happens in our brain chemistry and our function that then becomes physically or physiologically the basis for a lot of how our emotions go, a lot of how our feelings go. Again, that's really the gritty, the surgical kind of stuff. Mm. When we understand natural man vulnerabilities, natural man predispositions and tendencies, are there legitimate struggles with clinical depression, anxiety, with other issues that come up? A lot of kids these days, what we call executive functioning or ADHD issues, or sometimes they're on the spectrum. And so yeah. there's variety of different things that are part of this natural man experience that Lucifer will attempt to utilize and leverage against ourselves and against our relationships. And so maybe another principle here for parents is in those moments, if we can really try to maintain like a fierce commitment to this question, hey, what else might be true here? What else might be true about them? What else might be true about me? And what am I willing to then put my energy into in terms of truth? One, one truth might, one, one possibility that Lucifer is invested in is your child's a wreck. They're a throwaway. They're disrespectful. They're rude. They're antagonist. They, they are thoughtless. They're selfish. Da -da. Yeah. Well, of course they are. So mm -hmm. I'm, in moments, I'm one decision away. And oftentimes, as I told you through the story, of flubbing mm -hmm. it up and getting it wrong. So we all have those moments where we're falling to natural man tendencies and satanic enticement around it. Mm-hmm. But that's not complete. The complete picture is that's the stuff that we're working on because we're also amazing. We're also divine. We're known. We're, we're gifted. We have talents. We have things to bring to this world that nobody else can bring in the way that we can. Every one of us do as yeah. child parents. Okay, how do I get back in touch with that and anchored in that view of my child without becoming, as you said, so over invested that we then pick up their problems and pick up their issues yeah. That's 
as our own. No, it's how do I kind of just come back alongside you and say, in that conversation with my 23 year old, sweetie, I get it. This is yours to figure out. What can I do to help you? It's just to give you space and let you do this. Just knowing that when you look back over your shoulder, your mom and I are here. We got you, kiddo, in whatever way is most helpful. Ah, uh, yeah, that just fills me with immediate joy hearing you say that, right? It's so much joy. I wouldn't doubt that you listeners also felt the same thing, right? There we are. We're just watching. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. I believe you mentioned your daughter's 23. Yes. Yeah, that's the hardest thing to do with adulting children, young adult children, is to watch it. Because you're like, yeah. I have things to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, when they're when they're 20 or when they're 13 or 14, and we're like, they don't have kind of the, the life experience, yep. brain development yet to really be able to continue to do it. But it's got to start somewhere. In an age-appropriate way, we try to dial that back into what is appropriate for my child at this age, at this time, given that challenge. Amen. And it does have to adjust for their age and their experience, as well as all the things that they carry. And I'm so glad you hit that because I actually made a note of so many parents can be hearing what we're saying and be thinking, oh, we are, this all works for someone who doesn't have some kind of mental illness they're dealing with, or doesn't have another thing like I'm on the spectrum or I have ADHD, or I've been through a lot of trauma, just all that stuff added to it all. I think parents can be, can think, not only are we at battle, we're broken. Yeah. And so I love no one is broken. And sometimes it's our very brokenness that then brings us to this place of brilliance. If we could just speak to that. Uh, the the reality is, is that we are all broken. Yes. And Christ loves broken things. That's why he's here. Yes, he does. He, and years ago when I was reading in another source, the, a question was posed by the author. What is the most important commandment at any given time in your life, if there is one? Now, we, we know there's the first and great commandment, love God. Mm-hmm. It's like unto it, love your fellow man. I, I get that. But, and in a, in a more personal way, what about the one the one for us at any given time. And and this author just simply proposed, it's probably the commandment that we're struggling with the most. And his language was in effect because that commandment exposes the precise fault line between our developing holiness and our our ongoing struggle Mm. with natural man. Now, Now, why do I bring that statement up? If we do have kids taking this beyond commandments to, if they have struggles, I've talked with a number of young men who come in the door. They masturbate not because it's actually really about sexual arousal. They masturbate because it's actually about stress relief and managing kind of stressors or difficulties in lives where they're resorting to something that has become an acceptable option in the absence of a better idea that they have more success with. Yeah. Rather than getting caught up in maybe the heartache around the... Mm -hmm we perceive as like the moral failing of that. And that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is we're teaching, we're training, and we're learning. And whether we're talking about sexual struggles with sexual self-mastery, whether we're talking about substances, whether we're talking about anger, as as our leaders address in conference frequently, and any other host of mortal struggles and emotions and difficulties, the principle is often the same. Mm. We're learning bit by bit to train it differently 
And the more difficult the struggle, the more micro the focus with the help of the Lord. And so we take a look at in our group, for example, and I think, I hope this is helpful for parents. We had a group just last night where we were exploring through one of the eternal warriors lessons, what the impact of pornography is on the brain and brain function, brain development meant, right? And it was a really rich discussion. Awesome. And at the end of the group, what we got to though was like, okay, this is cool. So what? Mm -hmm. What's one thing, one thing that you can do that will represent you acting on the knowledge, the promptings, the impressions that you've had tonight. And what we've learned to really value in that group is Elder Dunn's talk from 2020, 2021, 1% um, mm -hmm. better. What are the micro betterments? And the more difficult the challenge, the more micro the move has to be. And the more micro our perspective has to be when we're looking for improvements that the Lord can help us with. Yes. And in case you're a listener out there thinking, I'm loving everything they're saying so much that I'm just trying to write as fast as I can. And he's saying micro. And that just means that the tinier the change needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're like, wait, I didn't quite, I don't understand that. Yeah. If the more difficult the challenge, the longer it's been around, the the harder it seems, this is hard for me. So good to notice that needs to be addressed with even just the smallest bit of change. Because as the onlooker, the steward, right? You're like, mm -hmm. no, no, we have to just do as now that we're in a program, now that we're aware of this issue, now that we're, we're over the top, we could go over the top with watch it, be vigilant, make sure it's even affecting our pocketbook. There's just a lot of that sure. goes, in, goes into this. Now, even though you're a wingnut because you're a teenager, you're no longer allowed to be a wingnut because we're aware of this one thing. And, and we now have the resources in place that can really help you with it. And so the expectations around the pacing and the progress around that sometimes escalate. Mm -hmm. We talk in group all the time. I don't know what the research is on this, but informally, here's what I can tell you in 12 years of doing that group. There's about a about a four to six week window after a young man starts groups, maybe even sooner, where mm -hmm. the newness and the novelty of everything that they've learned, like the intake was powerful. Man, warrior chemistry, it's awesome. Okay, I've got mad power and all these cool tools and resources. And then you get about three to four weeks in and all the, the glamour around all of that because of how new it is, the novelty of it starts to fade. And like just about any other experience in life, mm -hmm. get into the unattractive grit and grind and work of it where I get out, get out of bed and do that again today. And yes, welcome to yeah. life. Welcome. Yeah. And, and so my young men are very familiar with, okay, now, and they'll talk about it with her, with each other before I even get there. Hey, you know what? They're watching for it with some of the newer guys. You there yet? Where you there? Like that, that has manpower starting to feel like it's an irritant rather than a blessing. Like it's, it's like a burden. Like I, it's another have to rather than a want to. Yeah. yeah. And so good. Yeah. It's so helpful to be hearing what you're talking about from the angle of a parent, from the angle of a church leader, a bishop, maybe that's working with a youth that maybe doesn't quite understand what does success look like and what is my role in this? It is such a sweet gift to, gosh, I wish I could remember exactly how Brother Wilcox put it when he gave that talk about 
we don't want to hold the bar clear up here. The kindest, most helpful thing we can do is be micro. Yes. Not only micro, but maybe another angle on that as well. There's, there was an individual who not long ago came out with a book. It's called The Gap and the Gain. I love it. Yeah. And we talked about this in, I think, one of the Stay by the Tree series, right, Karen? Yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, yeah, I was actually hoping this would come up because that was such a gift when you spoke. TJ, if you go back in the Mother's Podcast, he spoke at our Stay by the Tree webinar series with a message of hope and mentioned this principle. So good. Yeah. We'll touch on it briefly. In addition to looking for micro improvements and micro betterments and valuing them, and I might say we don't value them at the risk of those micro improvements becoming or lowering the bar because that's a satanic attack. I think sometimes Lucifer would say, oh, so you want a gold star for getting out of bed today? Not about gold stars. But I did have a, one, a young man in group years ago who, for about six weeks in group, his manpower, because he struggled with severe clinical depression, his MAN squares for a time were get out of bed, take a shower, brush my teeth and shave. Mm. And to build any degree of consistency around those three steps, mm -hmm. absolutely a Herculean effort and a massive win for him. Not because he was lowering the bar and letting himself off the hook, but he was tapping into what is literally the next doable thing for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So gap in the game. Sometimes in our effort to look at and, and, and consider progress, this author talks about, in essence, here is this tool. We look, there, there's a difference between setting a goal and then how we look at the goal. And he says, we can either look forward at the gap between the goal and my present progress and continue to feel any host of negative emotions associated with, I'm not there yet. How come I can't get there? Oh, it's such a, I still have so much more work to do that, that we become defeated and discouraged and depressed, or we can actually set the goal. And then actually, as he says, look backwards, measure backwards to move forwards mm. and back of where we started where we are now compared to last week, the week before. Now it's not a steady, perfectly up, upward kind of climb. It's going to have variability to it. But generally speaking, when we take a look at what we have improved in, however small those micro betterments are that Elder Dunn talks about, then we start to build momentum around, but I am doing better. This is different. This is shifting. This is moving. And even if it's moving only that much. Yeah movement that wasn't there yesterday or the day before. So that becomes an, also an important part of this. Yeah, totally. That's so good because, boy, are we ever good at looking at the gap? I think that's one of the things you mentioned earlier of every day I have to get up and do this, right? Part of it is that just that acceptance of we are going to be battling till we're safely dead. This is what we do here. It's what we want to do here, but because of all, just the hard, the feeling of it, the endurance it takes, right? If you can't get that little shift of, oh, it's the gain of, I think you maybe shared this in your thing about the spiraling upward. Did you share that? Yeah, the spiraling upward instead of, because it's incremental. It's hard to see I'm spiraling up. Yeah. It feels like I'm every time I don't do or I notice how hard or how long I'm going to have to be trying so hard at this. 
It reminds me of something one of our generals said. He said, I used to ask myself all the time, why me? Why me? My, my life is so hard. Like I have to work so much harder than other people I know because of this. And then he said, and then he said, and then one day it hit me. Why not me? Why not me? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's it's perspective, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So TJ, speak a little bit about being a bishop. Has anything surprised you as far as, wow, now from this angle, because there's lots of bishops, like uh, my dad was a bishop. And when he became a bishop, what he did for a career, his challenge at emotionally connecting with people, even his children, just so many things. When he got called to be a bishop, all of us were just afraid for him. Right, because we knew, we thought, how's he gonna be a bishop? He can hardly speak to people at church. Like, how's he gonna do that, right? But he did it and he just did it with so much valor and courage. And we were all, it's still something that we all feel just so impressed by. But I think a lot of bishops, once they get in the trench of being a bishop, they're like, I wish I knew more about psychology. I wish I knew more about human behavior. I just wish I knew because I do this for work. I've studied this kind of thing my whole life. And now here I am in this situation. So I just think ideally as a bishop, you have worked like your expertise and experience is in, I do have a lot of tools information and I've worked a long time to understand not just through learning about all the stuff you did in your schooling and through your experience but through the spirit you love God you're a covenant disciple of Jesus Christ and so how can you if you were thinking if has anything surprised you even being who you are as a bishop right like with your experience. Yeah, yes, there's one thing that comes immediately to mind. And so let me direct this a little bit to maybe church leaders or bishops who are listening to this. And just in my own experience of being a year and a half, almost two years in. Yeah. With the background that you've talked about. You don't have to be a good psychologist. In fact, it's probably better that you're not. Mm. The biggest surprise is there's a very clear stewardship and role as a bishop to be the ecclesiastical leader not to be the therapist, to offer counselor without being a to offer counseling within that scope and that stewardship without being a counselor, like a professional counselor. I think that there's probably, in my opinion, I think there's better resources and, and even training now around take advantages of the resources that are available to you outside of your office around some of these issues. If when you meet with an individual or a couple or a family, related to issues that are going on at home within the marriage or within the relationships. There is a part of that which represents you staying anchored and focused on how can I counsel around gospel principles and offer love and support and encouragement around the Savior's atonement as it relates to these struggles. But when it comes to the professional counseling associated with that, develop a network, whether that's through LDS Family Services or local vetted professionals that you have some relationship with, that you you trust that they're not going to get your clients or your ward members, I should say, in trouble with their own value system. A good counselor is not about, it's not someone who is going to push their own agenda. 
become too directive regarding their own view of things. I think a really good therapeutic counseling process involves someone who is willing to meet the client where they are with their value set and then attempt to support them in staying true and, and, and realigning with their values. Now, what if you have a client whose values are not consistent with values that are part of for the strength of youth or, or the standards of the church or temple covenants, right? What if we have someone who's really struggling? Maybe they're engaged in faith transition, faith challenges, faith struggles. Mm-hmm. And their values are in, in flux right then. Mm-hmm. Be cautious about then trying to strong arm that process and trying to manipulate values mm-hmm. alignment. This issue was important enough to our father in heaven that, that he, he was willing to stand by when a third of his children left with one of his his other sons, right? So we have to recognize the importance of agency and not be too passive, but also not be too aggressive or, or demanding around this. Mm-hmm. So tap into the resources and learn the handbook. And I would also say what I've learned very quickly, coming back to your question about surprise, I was surprised how little um, or how much I found myself pulling back on being a counselor, but mm. just learning what it means to be a bishop, to be a bishop within that scope of practice. And what I have found is that, yeah, there are certain things from my learning, certain things from my experience that if nothing allows me to sit in an office with somebody, and I've had already in that first couple of years, there have been things that have come through my door that perhaps absent this background, I might be like, oh my gosh, is that a thing? <laughs> Wow, that's really hard. And I still feel the hurt and the heartache and the struggle at times for members who are struggling or suffering. Mm-hmm. It's not mine to own. That's between them and their savior. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not careful, if I start to take on too much of the ward members' struggles and pain as somehow as my own, it's not that I don't feel empathy. Mm-hmm. Not careful, I start to then... I believe you start to become in danger of starting to tread in, in into the realm that's that's Jesus's job. Mm-hmm. He gets to meet them there and he gets to help heal and take care of that. And he gets to help them through the blood, guts and barbecue sauce of that struggle. <laughs> that's awesome. That's not mine to take on. That's not my role. I'm not the savior. I'm an instrument in his hands. And then I plug them into a Relief Society president and elders quorum president, other organizations within the ward where ministering is really meant to happen. And that's the beauty of some of these temporal welfare issues is that more so now than ever before, we turn to the Word Council and the other organizations to assist with some of these very intimate and difficult challenges that used to all be addressed by a bishop. And it, and right. it was a Herculean task. Yeah, you know what? How does your word go about that? If you go to a Relief Study president or an Alice Corn president, yeah. What has that looked like in your ward to do that, to involve other people so that there's even more of a connection and less, maybe plays into less of the shame of things? Right. It starts off in the, oftentimes in the office with the person when I meet with them the first time. And usually the conversation will get to a point where I'll say, let's talk a little bit about what support for you around this really looks like outside of this office. Who mm-hmm. else plug in that can be really helped to here? Can I assist in that conversation? Can we? What concerns do you have about other people knowing? Now, one of the biggest issues around some of this stuff is confidentiality. And a lot of people are concerned about, I don't want my stuff getting out there. Understandable. And I think that's really important. The church puts a very strong premium on confidentiality being honored. 
I wonder if in the name of confidentiality, sometimes the, the unintended outcome of that is it falls on the shoulders of one or two precious few mm -hmm. in a way that's a disadvantage to the ward members who are struggling. Because if you think about what the Book of Mormon, especially in the latter part of the Book of Mormon, and the church did meet together off to fast and to pray with one another concerning the welfare of their souls. Back in those early days when Christ established his church, there was repentance. There was, we're getting real and gritty with each other. There are things that I think it's appropriate to teach and train on what's appropriate to share. Maybe what's not appropriate to share. But sometimes I think we still err on the side, of not sharing enough that allows for there to be more support. A dear friend of mine who, who taught me a concept that I, I want to share on this point, if it, if, if I could, he passed about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> young dad, young grandfather, but boy was just a, he had a really powerful definition of love that I believe is consistent with our savior's definition. So I'm going to share that if I could, but I invite the listeners to, you bring this back to the anchor of the scriptures and gospel teaching on this topic, but here was his definition. Your concern is my concern. Your interest is my interest. If something matters to you, that matters to me. It may not matter in the same way, but because it matters to you, that matters to me. And he would say, by that very definition, it's really painful at times to, to, to learn how often we limit the ability of other people to love us when we don't allow our concerns to be known. Mm -hmm. When we don't allow other people to get a glimpse behind the curtain of what's really going on, because we're oftentimes too busy trying to manage those impressions that we talked about earlier in the call. Mm -hmm. We don't want people to see our struggle. And so we struggle and suffer in silence. And so part of what we've talked about in our ward council is let's talk with each other and train on what it looks like when someone comes into my office. For me, first of all, to have a conversation that says, I wonder who else we might pull in to assist you with this. What are your concerns and worries about that? How can that be done? How can that be done in a way that feels respectful to you? Mm -hmm. And then we bring that to not necessarily a ward council meeting right away, but a Relief Society president, but an elders corn president, but a ministering brother or sister mm -hmm. or a friend. And we bit by bit start to allow others' concerns to be known rather than held in silence. Mm. Wow, that's really powerful. Yeah, that just pulls at my heart too. It just makes me think that is beautiful too. Yeah, to consider, yeah, I need love. I really need love when I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. I need it so much. And boy, it's so hard to get past that isolation piece. And just, let's just keep it small. Let's just keep it quiet. Let's not make this worse than it is. And yet again, Lucifer's fingerprints are all over those kinds of thoughts. Mm -hmm. if they really knew. If they really knew, then yeah. your judgment, we fear maybe social backlash or social negative social kind of impact. And I'm not saying that those fears aren't legitimate. And I know that there have been some who have actually suffered as a result of judgment and fear and people talking about us in a negative way. Mm -hmm. All those things considered, I still think it's worth an appropriate effort to try to expand the support network beyond just the bishop. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Does that also apply as it applies to our topic of breaking the chains of pornography? Does that also apply to, say, 
a wife or a husband comes into your office, they're struggling with pornography or sexual self-mastery, and you're hoping that the connection will happen between them and their spouse to at least inform them or let them know, but they're like, mm, that could just cause a whole can of worms to happen, right? Um, there are very sensitive dynamics around if you have a spouse coming in and talking about that. Mm -hmm. I, I agree that that becomes a very sensitive ground to navigate. Bit by bit, I think it's important not to get pushy with that, but to try to understand what are the potential obstacles to more open communication and disclosure. If mm -hmm. any of those obstacles are within the realm of safety or not just a, a, a social backlash, but I, I think in some of our meetings in the years that I remember in the last two, three decades or more, the topic of abuse, verbal abuse, psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, all this stuff that comes up. I know those are very real issues mm -hmm. that will have an impact on what is shared or not within a marriage. If that kind of stuff is going on, that's where a bishop needs to say, we need to pull someone else in on this and get a, a professional counselor involved with an individual. And then ideally with a couple, right? Because mm -hmm. when you get safety issues now, barring safety issues, if there's just maybe fear or concern and other potential negative outcomes, that's going to affect the way that my spouse sees me and the, the way that my spouse then further aligns with my children. And I feel a greater distance of the marriage, let's just say, as an example, mm -hmm. I think you still work through in the spirit of that kind of micro betterment perspective. You look for the little ways in which there can be softening that you invite people to turn towards each other. If, if it's one spouse turning towards the other, what are ways that we can test drive and start to cultivate a stronger sense of connection and a, a stronger sense of trust along the way to more open communication around things that, that are needful? Mm. With my background, I would probably say as a bishop, I will, again, it's not about arm twisting. I will probably lean a little more readily or heavily into if this is an issue that you're bringing in the door that you haven't disclosed to your spouse for fears, whatever they might be. And again, they're not safety issues. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of issue that is having an ongoing persistent impact within the, the marriage or family experience. Mm -hmm. I would probably be much more inclined to say, we need to find a way to create some movement around how that can be appropriately addressed with your partner. Because if not, then we're just kicking the can down the road and it's a setup for ongoing struggle and a life of suffering rather than healing. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that happens with me or whether, again, you want to pursue some professional help on how to navigate that family communication or marital communication, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. But let's at least start to create something of a micro step, micro movement, small and simple things, right? What gets you a little closer than you were before about having those needful conversations? Yeah, boy, that's a, it's such an important place. Could you think, I'm just thinking of the spouse mm -hmm. that isn't in your office initially, one that doesn't know, just understanding that I've been working with the bishop on this issue for however long, and they're, they find out and they think, oh, and all that long, you and the bishop knew about this and i've just been feeling like a crazy person over here and if we're talking again along those lines if we're getting into something that let's say that you've got a spouse who's struggling with pornography or kind of something more significant behaviorally and i don't yeah. want to tell the spouse 
to me, that gets into one of those kind of, look, this is having an impact on your marriage and, and your family. And it's affecting her or him in a way that's really pretty noticeable. And, and for me as a bishop, I, I might I might find myself saying it's destructive. Mm-hmm. And it's destructive in terms of your mental health, his or her mental health. And we need to find a way to address this mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that, that we can get there. We've got to get to the point where if it, when you talk about the timing of it, hey, you've been working with my spouse for so long. Now, are we talking days, weeks, or months? If something is of that significant of an impact on somebody, we're talking that it goes beyond weeks. And I don't have a predetermined timeline, Karen, on it. I think it really is important to keep, continue to keep eyes on that to where mm-hmm. increasingly over time, there's renewed attention and increasing attention to, I appreciate the fact that we're counseling, but if part of this counseling isn't getting us closer to being able to share this with your spouse, then we're off in the weeds. We're not really attending to this in the way that we need to. There are, may also be times where the conversation might sound a little bit more. I can't continue to hold this for you, given the impact that I see that it's having on, on your spouse. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, and this is a little bit more of what I sometimes sounds like as a counselor rather than a bishop, because I haven't yet as a bishop had this conversation. I don't have to feel that out when I get there. Mm-hmm. But I've had this conversation many times, especially when it comes to children. If I have a, a kid who comes in or a youth comes in and they're talking about things that they're doing and their parents are in the dark about, let's say, mm-hmm. or to your earlier example, one spouse is doing something that is obviously having an impact on the other spouse because of the crazy making associated with that. They know there's intuition, there's parental kind of just awareness, like something's going on and I don't have my finger on it. Bishop, is there anything you can tell me? Yeah. And it feels like that kind of pressure is building. Then the conversation is really targeted with love and respect saying, I think we're getting to a point where you either need to tell tell your, your spouse or your parents or I'll need to do it, but I won't do it without you. Uh, unless I absolutely have to. If it's a safety issue, all bets are off, right? And the church's legal department is really clear on that. We take a stand for the safety of vulnerable parties and families. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of a safety issue, and yet if it's a significant enough struggle, we still do need to increase the awareness of the information holder on, I think part of your struggle is the very kind of holding of information that you're engaging in right now. And it's actually contributing to the struggle that you're having. We've got to find a way to create some movement. Sorry for the background noise, if you can hear that. I actually can't hear it, but that's that's so good. And it's a tough one, but it's just so critical. So what I'm hearing you say, and it's not all that you're saying, because you're saying so many vital, beautiful things to be considering around this, but often a bishop's role is to help someone who maybe has gotten in a pattern of behavior where they might not see all the angles that their behavior, what it's causing for other people. They might just be in that, hey, I just need to keep this in the dark. Hey, I just need to fix this myself. Hey, I I can't even think about the fallout, the, the bystanders here and what that will happen if this comes out a thing. So it's saying, in the spirit God gave you, that's not where you're speaking from right now. You're Let's get back to the spirit God gave you so that you can then see this is impacting other people. It's not about you, even though I'm so glad you came in here because it's about you, right? Yeah. It's not all about you, right? Yeah. And so 
and that there's a part of this that is if you think about in any of the membership councils that I've been a part of, when I think about just the general principles of that, right, we tend to pay attention to a few things. The salvation of this, the soul of the, the person who's coming in. If we're talking about disclosing of sin and, and, and confessing and repenting and in a manner that involves priesthood leadership, it's protecting the innocent, so protecting other parties, and it's also being mindful of the impact on the church, okay? Now, as it relates to those first two, we're trying to attend to both. The salvation of the soul of the sinner, of which we are all sinners, right? Mm-hmm. And the protection of those that are innocent parties. Perhaps for this conversation, it's just helpful to acknowledge that's the principle. That's the fundamental kind of doctrine around some of these issues that come into a bishop's office. Mm-hmm. We do our best to keep our eyes on those two things and then prayerfully consider the spirit of the Lord counsel together appropriately with, with maybe professionals as needed around. And, and if there's anything, if a bishop is at all hesitant, is this a legal thing? Is this a reportable thing? In case of doubt, call church legal, right? And find out where the line is around that so that you can continue to, to, to per- proceed in your counseling with a member or, or a family couple in confidence that you're within the, the, the bounds that you need to be. All that set aside as, as part of your framework, you turn to your Father in heaven and you prayerfully consider what these conversations need to look like. And sometimes it might be, Heavenly Father lets you know, I've got the spouse, continue to support them in getting to the point where they can get their head above water and eventually get to the point of sharing with spouse. Sometimes the prompting might be, this is really an important thing that the spouse needs to hear about. So we're going to increase the support and the promptings and the impressions around how to counsel that member in the moment along the lines of what you said. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is not just about you. It's about them too. And if we can actually get this on the table with spouse or appropriately family members, then your own healing process and your growth and, you, and your improvement in this area, your healing in this area is going to be magnified and sanctified beyond what you're experiencing right now. So good. Gosh, TJ, I just am feeling so edified and blessed to be doing this with you. I feel like I could just keep going and then we could go eat dinner and then we could. (laughs) Yeah. But I just think, oh, there's so many places we could go. I just need to maybe remember to have you do this with me maybe every six months or something it would just be so good you have a well, if there's an opportunity for something like this where you kick it off and if there are questions and follow-up that come after this if there's a way to say okay hey based on what we talked about before here's yeah. the feedback that we got here are some of the questions that come out of that knowing that it's not just me like I, there's a few times i've been thinking about oh it'd be really good to address that wes and spence right those guys mm-hmm. i think about how they help parents understand how to navigate some of these really tricky situations with how do we appropriately hand over this process to our child. Yes. Wes and Spence are absolutely powerful examples and, and consistent in their message of, again, age appropriate. Y- you can't pick up the problem as your own. They have to find their way. And if that means that the family, it gets harder before it gets better. They mm-hmm. go through struggle as they're learning to truly step into and grow into their agency Mm-hmm. a mother or a father however intended kind of getting out ahead of them and not allowing a child to have full ownership of this i don't know of anybody better than weston spence and being able to address that process and what it looks like they're powerful yeah. it'd be fun to be a part of an ongoing conversation with others that are part of of your resources here to yeah. try to meet the needs of your listeners yeah that would be brilliant 
Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that you're feeling to say before I tell everybody how much I like to hear why you fight? <laughs> maybe one last thing. Trust and eternal perspective. And another way of saying that, maybe that has to do with a little bit more of a feeling of here on earth is just trust in the long arc of the parent-child relationship. The long arc. Sometimes we get a little impatient, understandably, yeah. and unintentionally for the healing and the change to happen sooner. But if we just, I, I think any parent who's been around long enough to have children grow and become adult children and so mm -hmm. forth, this is true. That if we cannot get so anxiously forceful about change sooner, that we hijack the atonement of Jesus Christ from him. Not that we can ever can really, but that's the attempt unintentionally. Just trust that our father knows, not only knows us, but he knows our timeline and he knows eternity. And if perfection is pending as President Nelson has taught us beautifully, then let's allow it to be a process of perfection over time, bit by bit with the help of the Lord that will involve dark moments and not always seeing the end from the beginning. Mm. And that's why we walk by faith. And just know that seeds are being planted. Things that are being taught are probably getting in there more than we as parents realize. And then what we try to do is just to continue to try to set the stage for a relationship to be a home base that when mm. all else fails, a kid knows I can turn back to mom or dad at some point. Alma the Younger is a beautiful example of that. Behold, I remembered my father's teaching of one Jesus Christ, the son of God, mm. who would atone for the sins of the world after three days, three nights, and years worth of destructiveness to the church. Right. And you didn't have a mother or father, Alma the senior. You didn't have mom and dad out there trying to keep him from doing it. They, mm. taught, they, they, they tried to mitigate the damage that he was doing. But they trusted that the, the one who could make a difference would make a difference in his own time, in his own way, in mm -hmm. the heart of, of that son. It's a painful, difficult place to be as a parent. But trust it. Trust that the Lord's got your child, got you over time. That's so good. Thank you for that. I just need to add a little piece to what you. I felt impressed to say. I've often thought of Alma Sr. Mm -hmm. And what kind of experience he had as he's the person that i'm sure battled with i'm trying to teach right everybody how we're supposed to be acting right and yet in such great vulnerability you're noticing that this isn't really working at my house i think we experienced that so much and but yet I wish they would give us just a little window right there, right? <laughs> Alma chapter, sub-chapter, whatever, yes, right? Yes, because you're like, man, that he had some battles right there. That was hard for him because not only did he have a stewardship just as a father, but he had a stewardship with all the saints there. And so I've, I've often thought of that and thought, of course, he had an experience that he could relate to us in our parenting. And I've also thought of, that's why it's so important for parents to understand, or leaders, but just so important for us to understand that there is a stay by the tree aspect of parenting. Mm. You know, this whole, 
beckon from the tree in various different ways, like Lehi did, but stay by the tree mm-hmm. because that's where you're going to be, yeah, carried, fed, be able to see, access the atonement of Jesus Christ for you because you're going to need a lot of rest, right? You're going to need to be like sweating a lot, but at the same time knowing where your rest comes from and also have an awareness. This is what we do a lot in our trainings with moms is we want moms to have an awareness of something I did not have an awareness of and made a big blunder of for, for a while was can, could it be true that all the church lady inside of me that sounds like I can't let them do that would be totally going against my church ladiness and what I know to parent like that, right? This is what the prophet says. That's what the thing says. That's what the fall home eating book says. It's what it says. So I have to say things. I have to do that. And often we are deceived because the adversary uses our deep sense of love as well as our wanting to be aligned with righteousness right he taps into that and he says your gifts like satan knows better than anybody how scary a woman is (laughs) When when she is aligned with her identity and purpose and knows that there's only one savior i'm just a mom or i'm just a dad and but i am here boy do i have a a lot of work to do because i am i'm here in this atmosphere angel role that says whether you're the rock going up or down your worth doesn't change and all that stuff right that's so vital for us to say your identity matters you're gonna figure this out i can look beyond right now to the the long arc that you spoke of I just think, but I think Satan is so good if we don't have also that awareness of we're not the enemy. Our child is not the enemy. We have an enemy, but he will try to deceive us into supporting his work from a church lady perspective. When, if we can say, wait, let's get all of these pieces separated out where my power lies where that's my business this is my role and this is how i can influence you in that role and then this is god's work that's about all i can do is be a really good influence with a lot of love and patience and really go to the lord for rest while i wait it's interesting because uh, as you've been sharing that, I just thought I thought briefly, it's, it's more just a moment of acknowledging a reference that may be worth some attention years ago when I was on my mission. So this would have been before 93 to 95. Mm-hmm. Then Elder Oaks gave a talk how our strengths can become our downfalls. And I think at times when you apply that kind of notion to the idea of strength, strengths as a parent, and what we attempt to do as a parent, again, oftentimes well-intended and unintentionally, mm-hmm. we overshoot the mark of our role and we get out of sync and out of partnership with the Savior, mm-hmm. we wind up taking on too much. But on the flip side, if we strive to be very clear and humble, this is where you can, like Ether 12, 27, come mm-hmm. unto Christ, show unto me, give unto me your weakness, 
and mm-hmm. I will be right. So as a parent, what I heard, I think Kenneth Cope years ago, I don't know if you know the name, Kenneth Cope back in the day, sang a lot yeah. of stuff. And I think about some of his songs along those, and I believe it was him. Maybe it was another one of the artists at the time, which part is mine and which oh, yeah. part which part is mine and which part is yours? If we stay relentlessly focused and humble with that question, the Lord will not leave us hanging. You know what? I don't think that's his name. It's the no. gentleman with the dark curly hair who well, came out with some courageous vulnerability saying that he stayed on the covenant path, but boy, was he struggling with his testimony, but I can't remember his name either. Oh, it's, I know who you're talking It's Michael McClain. Yes, that's he. That's, that's his song. Right, right, that's his song. Which part is mine? Right. Which part is yours? Yeah. That yeah, is, yeah, beautiful story there too. Yeah, if anyone wants to take a moment and go watch about 12 minutes worth of his story, what it was like to, to go through his own experience with one of his children, that's powerfully consistent. Yeah. with. Him. Yeah. So good. Oh, so good. And just, I was meeting with a mother once and she said, as she, she just, realized we are just going to share the pot of soup that we're stirring and trying to keep going so no one can see our ingredients we just want you to smell it out there don't even look in the pot right we're just i'm looking busy yeah. I'm doing my thing and everybody's showing up and we smell fine but she got to the point where she realized not only do you have to stop stirring the soup you have to get a ladle get a bowl, put the ingredients in it and actually give it to people. Like right. say, this is how much help I need. This is now I'm identifying I am not the savior. I cannot help you fix that. We need the savior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, she took her camera because she was in a, a back east in a state, but she took her camera and showed me. She said, this is what is in my living room now after she shared Here's what my husband has struggled with for years. Here's what I'm struggling with for real. And this is my child. And this is my this. And I have someone in the program, all these things. And I was like, that's a lot of stuff, right? Um, But she just said, this is what we do now. She said, now I just feel so much more calm and peaceful. And she showed me this vinyl on her wall. And it said, this home. Now it said, this house is a house of grace and it was huge it was huge it was like she had that specially made to just be this huge thing in this great room she had this house is a house of grace go ahead and be messy we're we're just gonna serve our soup because that's how we can find the savior i will say in the spirit of that and this is why maybe kenneth cope's name is in my mind i think the title of the song is and i know he's the artist in the spirit of what you're sharing Listeners, go listen to a song called Broken Things by Kenneth Cope. It's consistent with the Lord didn't come to heal the whole, right? He came to heal the sick and the afflicted and to succor us, not just from sin, but from infirmities and afflictions. So good. Beautiful. Listeners, TJ has a group on Thursday evenings, which is when we had the generals panel monthly. We've right. now- we're now adjusting, but we're going to see how it goes with having Maurice run the generals panel quarterly as part of our Stay by the Tree webinar series. We're going to see how that does going forward. And this will be our first try this time. 
but he anyway you would have a group in your Syracuse group and that that would last until 8 30 at night right 6 30 to 8 30 on Thursdays and then we'd still we'd just be at the point where we we're asking the generals on the panel why are you fighting and why don't you just give up and you would pop in right there at the end and I don't know if you popped in with the intention of I totally want to share why I fight, but I just loved when you would. And once I heard you say why you fight, I thought he's never getting away with not doing that again. Because <laughs> that's really awesome to hear men come from a place of a heart centered. This is why I fight. I know my why. So I just wondered in closing, would you share why you're fighting and why you don't give up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Today and in this moment, because it sounds a little different each time, but there are things that, that are consistent, but how they're expressed is really always about the moment. I fight because I am a partner, a son, a brother, a husband, a father. And within all of those roles, as I talked about earlier, I am broken. I am a beggar. I am fallen. But with the help and the atoning sacrifice of Christ, I'm saved by grace and through his atonement and my efforts. I'm his. I'm a Christ-assisted hell shaker. As my children learn and grow and develop and they, and they come to know their Savior until they do, I fight to be a man on earth that they can look to that says, I maybe may not know Christ yet, but I know my dad and he points me in that direction. So I cry so I, I fight so they can see his image in my countenance. I fight because I love these boys. I fight because they are precious. They are strong, they are powerful. I fight because I am with them, not above them or beneath them but I'm walking this journey with him in a little bit of a different role and in a different place in that path. I fight because there are currently 439 members of my ward who look not just to me, but to look to the ward leadership for help, for love, for a place of fellowship and faith and strength and where our ward family keeps it real. And I fight to, to be a part of modeling that with them. Mm -hmm. I, fight because Jesus makes it possible for me to do that through him and have full faith, confidence, and trust that the fight is not in vain. Those are some of the reasons why I fight today, Karen. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for listening listeners and the resources that we talked about as well as yeah, things that maybe as you've listened, you're like, okay, maybe I will check out these resources maybe i will even reach out to tj around and and say could we talk for a minute yeah yeah and that's always to me that's always the a beautiful opportunity and i'll tell you this and i think this but for the listeners as well that's never uh top of mind or first priority in coming into an experience like this really it's just to try to meet where you are and whether we've spoken to some of your issues i, I think about what elder holland said in conference years ago he says, when we attempt to address, address the world, we know that not every one of you is struggling with infidelity or struggling with kind of these various things that he mentioned. 
But if you listen closely and with the help of the Spirit, some one of us will touch on something. And I feel like that in our own way, that's what we do on these interviews with you and these podcasts, is that some one of us might speak to your experience in a way where there is something of a personal prophetic epistle is what he called it just for you. So if there's anything that you've heard, whether it's the group, whether it's the services overall, whether it's Karen, some of the things you might read, just know you're not alone and know that there are resources and people available to you who are not above you, who are not perfect, mm-hmm. walking the same path and will walk it along with you. So you don't have to do it alone. That's what. Thank you. Bet. Thanks for your time. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's been awesome. So thank you. Sexual self-mastery in our day can be extra challenging. All of our families know someone tangled in the trap of pornography. We invite you to join thousands of youth and adults who have found hope and healing through the gospel-centered, faith-affirming programs for youth and adults offered through Life-Changing Services. Go to Life-Changing Services to get on the road to freedom and recovery.